0: It's good to be here. It's good to, to see different faces than we saw last week. The people that weren't on vacation last week are here this week and the people that were here last week for the most part on vacation this week. That's okay. That's okay. Not everybody can be like me because I feel like summer vacation should happen during the winter. Um, you know, I don't want to go somewhere and sweat 24 hours a day. Uh, it's just not, not my jam. But that's okay. If that's you and you love just to, to sweat copious amounts of bodily fluid, that's great. Have at it. But hey, we're here and we're not sweating and so I'm happy. Uh, I did want to say congratulations to Travis and Ashley Chance, new couple, congrats, what was that, what was it? oh Sarah, I'm sorry, sweating beside your sister Ashley, Sarah, man, yep, there we go, let's sweat now, um, <laughs> congratulations, y'all got married three weeks ago, two weeks ago, yep, I just keep getting them right, we're doing awesome, um, know everything about our congregation and uh, congratulations to you guys, hopefully you can learn more about them than apparently I know, um, no, congrats, glad you guys are here. Uh, today, we are, we're back in the book of Mark. We're going to be uh, chewing on a large section today. I uh, didn't feel like splitting it up because it kind of it, it tells a broader story, um, and uh, so we're going to jump, jump right in. It was neat before that just to see my daughter up here talking about camp, um, that little red-headed girl with freckles. Believe it or not, genetically, she's mine. In a lot of other ways, she's mine too, and it's clearly obvious, and uh, to hear her coming back from camp. Uh, was neat to hear her just talking about the things they did, and apparently she went to the camp director at one point and introduced herself, and she said, I'll be working here at some point, and I'm like, you're, you're probably right, you will. So that's, that's my daughter. That's my little red. So uh, neat to see them. Thanks again for everybody that donated to keep parents from having to pay so much to send kids to camp, and uh, we're still taking that up to help boys and their dads go to camp too, so we appreciate it. Uh, thank you for uh, just, man, giving what you have so that parents can do it. Um, so let's go ahead and take a peek. We're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. Uh, familiar occurrence takes place here. We're going to talk about that, what that looks like. Um, and, you know, for all of you folks that are keto, I just want you to understand we're going to talk about bread today, and we're going to have communion. I don't want you to freak out yet. It's okay. Um, bread's not a bad word, um, but just preparing you. We're going to talk about it. But let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you uh, for your word that is trustworthy, that it points us uh, not only to God, our Father, but Jesus, our Savior, and also the Spirit that will indwell in us as a seal of by grace through faith. Um, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's uh, worthy of trust, that it's worthy of examination, and that it's worthy as, a, of a basis, as being a basis for our life. Uh, God, today I pray as we speak that you speak louder than anything else, um, you, that you would be the loudest voice in the room. And uh, God, I just thank you that we have your assurance that if we are gathered together in your name, you are here. And so we thank you for your presence, we thank you for speaking, we thank you for salvation and God today, we, we thank you so much for Jesus, because uh, he is what we need. We love you, it's in your name we pray, amen. So starting, Mark chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to go ahead and read through all 21 verses and uh, come back and, and talk about those. Uh, so it says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate or desert place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that they also should set them before the people." And they ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. He sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamuntha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "'Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation.'" And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, speaking of the disciples, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing or arguing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And so, believe it or not... There are a couple of occasions in which Jesus fed a multitude like this. We read about one a few chapters ago, and it was Jesus feeding the 5,000-plus, 5,000 5,000-plus 5,000 women and children, maybe up to 15, 20,000 people. Very similar occurrence. Main difference between that account and this account, that account took place amongst Jewish people, predominantly Jewish people. This one, he's still in uh, the outside land of the Gentile land. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's amongst mostly Gentile folks. Um, and so that's important, especially going along with the past couple of weeks, the things that we were talking about, the fact that uh, Jesus confronted the religious law, saying, hey, it's not about what you eat, uh, it's not about what goes into your stomach, it's about what comes out of your heart, because what comes out of your heart is, really, is you know, actually revealing what is actually sinful about you. That would have upset the Jewish people. And then he actually healed someone that was a Gentile, and they made a, a pretty bold statement uh, that we talked about, like a really kind of a sticky passage. If you missed that, go back and listen. But basically, all of these things pointing to the fact that salvation, yes, being from the Jews to the Jews first, but it's going to ultimately be for all people. And so same idea here. There's some big ideas being conveyed about the fact that he's willing to feed Gentiles, 4,000 plus women and children. And so some similarities between those two stories, pretty obvious. Number one, he multiplied uh, a lot from very little. Pretty miraculous sign. But it wasn't so much about the sign as it was so much about the compassion of Jesus. That compassion, again, I love the transliterated word of compassion from the Greek. It literally means like a stirring within the bowels. means like you are moved so much uh, by what you see that you have to do something. And it says he looked at the crowd. They had been with him for about three days. They were hungry. He was moved with compassion, so he he fed them. And so a couple things, really quick, another multitude, different setting, uh, further proof that it's all people. Um, He feeds them, and then he quickly... Dismisses them, like he he sends them away, and then he gets into a boat. Um, Before he gets into a boat, like I think, a couple things that will generally people get kind of caught up on in these two passages. uh, In the first passage that we read about feeding the multitude, he took up twelve baskets. This passage, he took up seven. Uh, There are some numerical people that love the Bible, want to love numbers. Here's here's my warning for you: don't get too don't get too tussled in in that. Just it's okay. The biggest thing is there were leftovers. Everybody ate. They were satisfied. They were filled to the brim, and there was more than enough. And so after he fed, there was more than enough. He gets back into a boat, goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish territory. And when he gets there, the Pharisees are waiting. Imagine that. He had gone away for a little while, away to to get away. Originally, when he went just a couple chapters ago, a, previous, a couple sections ago, it says that he went to kind of a, a faraway place to go into a house to kind of get some rest, but people had already heard about Jesus, probably because of the exercising of the legion of demons that we talked about earlier when he was in a similar place. And so he went away to get, get away from the Pharisees, from the religious elite, all of those people. He comes back as soon as he hits the shore. Apparently, they're waiting. And, and upon their waiting, it says this. It says, The Pharisees came, and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Basically, what they were looking for, um, because of all the things that he had said, all the things that they had done, they came to him, and they basically wanted a certificate of authenticity. Like if we ever buy things that are, that are old or relics, supposedly you know, uh, of great value coming from somewhere really good, you want a certificate of authenticity to make sure that you're buying the right thing. If you buy Beanie Babies now... You know, my wife, she loved Beanie Babies. You need that certificate of authenticity, or that Beanie Baby could be a knockoff. It couldn't be what you thought that you were buying. You could have been buying, buying a false uh, bill of goods. I don't know if anybody even knows what Beanie Babies are, but for some reason, my wife does, uh, and she's not in here to hear me picking at her right now, so that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, so either way, they were coming to him, and they were like, we, we want to really know. Like, we want to really, really know that you are who you say you are. We want to we see something. Here's the crazy thing. They had already seen a lot. They had already heard a lot. They had already been challenged by his authority, authority that he should not have. He was speaking like someone who wrote the book. Why? Because he had. According to John 1, the logos, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, In the beginning was the word. All of this, like he was that. But they still, they were like, we we just kind of need, we need something more. We need something more formal from you. And he basically answers them. He says, uh, he says, he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he says, why does this generation, or basically not just necessarily a generation of people born from a certain period to a period, but it's more like, why does this group of people right here, why do you demand a sign? What is it about you that, that thinks you need to see more? And then he says this, he says, truly I say to you, no sign or no more signs will be given to this group of people. Because basically, like to be honest, like they had, they had seen everything they needed to see. He had already done things that a man should not be able to do. He had already spoken with authority that a prophet did not have. He had already done just so many things, but yet they, they wanted more. They wanted more. And he says, so why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then, and he left them got into a boat again, and went to the other side. So basically, in this, this huge collection of verses, we have Jesus on one side of the Sea of Galilee amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Uh, he feeds them. He takes care of them after them being with him for three days, has compassion, wants to make sure they eat. He said, some people walked a long way. If I don't feed them, they're going to walk home and try to eat, and they're going to pass out. Can't have that. Going to feed them. What do you have? A few fish, few loaves. Bam, does it. Hands it to the disciples. They distribute. I provide, you distribute. Big lesson from the last multitude that he fed. And so then, right after that, he gets into a boat, goes back to the land amongst his people where salvation came to, came from, is flowing out of, and the religious elite, they meet him there, and they're like, hey, you've done a lot, but we need, we need just a little bit more. Need a l- little bit more, Jesus of Nazareth, you son of a carpenter, you guy. We need, need a little more. He's like, how could you possibly ask for more? How could you possibly ask for more? And then he gets back in a boat, goes back across the sea, back into the land of the Gentiles, which he'll get to. We'll see that next week. And then this is what we see. This is kind of where we're going to be for the rest of this time. So when he's back in the boat, and I'll go ahead and tell you, he's back in the boat with the disciples. And if you've been paying attention, following along, pretty much every time Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples up until now, they've had some type of crisis, okay? Uh, There was a storm at one point. Uh, there were some other things, and either way, there's a good time to chat. Apparently, it's like a road trip. Like, I don't know, if you've got a road trip of about six to seven hours with just a couple people in your car, you're guaranteed of a couple things. Number one, uh, you're going to have to stop at a Bucky's if you pass one, apparently. Uh, everybody does. I've, I haven't been to one yet. I'll probably bypass it if I do, because I'm a rebel, um, But I love QT, you know, and I love Pilot because they've got the best beef jerky. But either way, you're guaranteed of a couple things. Truck stop, got to stop at one. You can even buy a quilt at most of those. Uh, You're guaranteed of that. Another thing, you're guaranteed that there's great space, great time, and a great place to have deep conversations. Because if you don't have deep conversations, you're going to run out of things to talk about pretty quick. Because you can only talk about the weather and, and, and clothing styles for so long. If you're a dude, you've probably got about 30 seconds worth of style to talk about. And the rest of it, you've got to dig pretty deep, okay? Uh, you can talk about the last fish that you killed, the last deer that you killed, the last fish that you caught. Pardon me, I throw everything back. The last deer that you killed, I don't throw those back. Um, you can talk about that only for so long until you've got to start digging a little bit deeper. Jesus and the disciples, same way. When they were in a boat, stuff came up. This is no no exception. It says, so now, uh, starting in verse 14, it gives us kind of an idea of what's going on. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. That's pretty interesting since they just had seven baskets a little while ago. But either way, they forgot to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. They hadn't said anything yet. Here's Jesus' first words. Now, remember the conversation that he just had. They were there. They were watching. Remember the multitude that he just fed. They were there. They were watching. They were distributing. This is the first thing out of Jesus' mouth on their road trip or their boat trip, either way. Maybe it was lake trip. I don't know, sea trip. Either way, I don't know. I'm terrible at comparisons. It says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So very first thing out of his mouth. He doesn't ask them how much bread they brought. He doesn't ask them what they're going to eat. He doesn't ask them uh, what their favorite style of sandal is. He doesn't do that. No, he cuts right to it, goes right past the small talk, and he's like, look out. Beware of the leaven. Of the Pharisees and of Herod, he just left that conversation, and so for them they would have heard leaven. For us, we don't really we don't hear that a whole lot. But for us, it would be more like, hey, beware of that one bad apple, because it ruins the whole bunch. Same idea with leaven. They would have been transported back to the days in which the Exodus occurred, when they left Egypt. And the people were wandering around in the desert. And and they were basically told, look, don't bring leaven that you had in Israel. Don't bring that lump of bread, that starter batch that you had for your sourdough there and make more bread here. We want to leave all of that behind because I'm taking you to a new place, a new promised land, a place that I promised your forefathers. I'm taking you to somewhere great. Don't take stuff from your past. Don't take the leaven. Because if you do, metaphorically and quite literally, if you bring stuff from there and you bring it to here, you're going to be cut off from the here. And so basically for us, it's, it's the same as the one bad apple. It ruins the whole bunch. He's saying, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, pretty much a parable form him because he didn't really give description. He didn't really even say what he meant in that, like He didn't say what the leaven was. He didn't say what, uh, what this bill of goods was that he's saying don't take or don't buy or don't purchase. He didn't say any of that. So it was still a little bit in parable form. And we go all the way back to how we started in Mark. And if we go even back to, um, to Isaiah and Jeremiah, he talked about, I'm going to talk in parables so that those that have ears to hear will, and those who have eyes to see will, but those who can't hear and can't see, you're not going to understand. We assume a couple things about the disciples, even at this point, early on walking with Jesus. We assume that they had everything together, you know, because they were his disciples. Like, he had called them. He's like, hey, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And we assume the moment that they were like, okay, Jesus, I'm on board, we assume that they were good. But what we've learned, if we've been paying attention through this book of Mark and even to here, is they didn't have it all together. They weren't even close. They were still fishermen at heart. They were still sinners at heart. They were still people that could very easily go the way of the Pharisees or go the way of Herod, uh, but yet Jesus was molding them. He was making them. He said, I will make you, I will change you, I will transform you. That's what he was doing. It wasn't instantaneous. It was a process. Now, from death to life, yes, but then the maturity of their sanctification, it took a little while. Same thing with us. So he tells these disciples, he's like, watch out, look out, be on the lookout for the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they, this is the disciples, this is how they responded. It says, and they began discussing, the actual Greek understanding of that is they began fighting with words or arguing. They began arguing with one another the fact uh, that they had no bread, that they had no bread. This is what it made them aware of. Again, disciples, everything together, right? Nope, not even close. Jesus looks at him. he's like, beware of the leaven, that starter lump of bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. The first thing the disciples think is like, "Uh, we don't have any bread, Jesus. That's where their mind goes. They're still young, they're still learning, they're still immature, they're still men on a boat that are probably hungry. They didn't get what Jesus was laying down. They didn't even try to in that moment. They were just reminded that they had one loaf, 12 guys, 13 counting Jesus, and that one loaf wasn't going to go very far. And so Jesus has to redirect. And so what Jesus does next is pretty interesting. In order to redirect uh, their thoughts and their hearts from where they are, because, again, they are following him so that he can change them, transform them, make them into fishers of men, release them on the mission that he started so that when he's gone, they can be the foundation for the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus. And so he is actually shaping them, even in this moment, on this boat. And the way he does it is pretty interesting. He asks five rhetorical questions, according to Mark. Then he asks two kind of thought-provoking, correcting questions, and then he leaves them with a question to make them really go, hmm, hmm. So the first five, the rhetoricals, that means he asks, but he doesn't really expect an answer. He probably fired them off pretty quick. He said the first, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Why are you discussing the fact that you had no bread? Now, rewind just a little bit, you know, Go back just, just a few lines, a few verses. For them, maybe a day or two. They had just seen Jesus do something pretty miraculous. They had seen 4,000-plus people hungry. Jesus, through compassion, the stirring in him, saw something, had to act, took a few loaves, multiplied them, and fed like 4,000-plus people. There's 12 dudes on a boat, 13 counting Jesus, and one loaf of bread, yet they're still a little bit concerned with like, hey, we don't have enough food, okay? But he asked them, he's like, why are you discussing the fact That you have no bread. The second question Do you not understand? Do you not get it? Do you not perceive? Can you not think deep enough? Do you not understand? This is not Jesus being mean. This is Jesus shaping his disciples because that's the point. They're following him, he's making them, transforming them. He's doing it through questions right now. Do you not perceive or understand? He said, Are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? Read one commentator this week. He said, A hardened heart. Most of the time, we think of someone who is incapable or ignorant of understanding, but actually, a hardened heart is someone who is fully capable of understanding and knows truth and chooses not to. He said, Are you choosing not to know in this moment? Are you choosing ignorance over informative reality and truth at this point? Are your hearts hardened? And then he says, Have eyes. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not? remember. So in this moment with the disciples, five quick rhetorical questions, but basically they all come back to this. You're arguing about bread, and I am right here. What are you missing? What are you missing? Now again, we, we talk about... Uh, being able to place ourselves in people's shoes when we read Scripture. We need to try our best to do that, and especially in this place. And if, and if we, we ask the question like, hey, of the people in this story, in this account, who are you most like? Are you more like Jesus or are you more like the disciples? Am I more like Jesus or am I more like the disciples? There's no way on any given day that I can say that I'm more like Jesus in this passage, okay? So I have to align with the disciples. I have to place myself in their sandals and be there. And then I do have to ask the question, would he be asking me the same things that he's asking them at this point? Now, for us, we have the beauty of uh, 2,000 years' worth of hindsight. We have the, the ability to look back at 2,000 years worth of church tradition, good and bad. We have the ability to look back at maybe the lineage and the heritage of my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents growing up in the United States and understanding biblical stories. We have the ability to look back and maybe even remember vacation Bible school, which is going on right now, maybe hearing similar stories of this. The disciples had none of that. The disciples, they had, they had their, their, their Jewish past. They had learned about the God of the Old Testament, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They had learned about that, the God of Moses. They had learned about Noah. They had learned about David. They had learned about Solomon. But this Jesus guy, he was still really, really new. And he was still really, really different from everything they knew. And so, yes, our, our first reaction is to look at the disciples and be like, you guys are idiots. Here's the thing. Let's go ahead and toss it out there. I would have been the same idiot. I would have been, man, maybe more. I would have probably been more ignorant because I know myself. I would have have probably been the guy that Jesus needed to ask ten rhetorical questions instead of just five. But we would have been in the same boat, having the same conversation most likely. Or we could have been one of the Pharisees that got left on the shore just a few minutes ago. Maybe that's even more scary. We could have been the people possibly that Jesus was warning the disciples about. Either way, in this moment, these disciples, Jesus asked them those five questions. Basically, I'm in the boat with you right now. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? Do you not understand? Where's the the breakdown here? See, here's the difference, though, between a couple of the crowds that we've seen already. We've seen a crowd of Gentiles, okay? They needed to be fed. Jesus graciously fed them graciously fed them, had compassion on them, sent them away. We see the disciples here. The disciples here, which Jesus was actively training, uh, actively coaching, if we want to say that. He was discipling them in the very literal sense so that he could release them to change the world. He was doing that. But then we had the Pharisees right in between those two. And the Pharisees, they came wanting to see another sign. Uh, Their hearts were hardened by choice, by choosing. And and Jesus looks at them. He's like, I'm not going to show you anything else. You've seen enough. He could have said that to the disciples, could have said that to us. But instead, what he does with the disciples is he decides to try to coach them along, to try to change them, to try to transform them through the only power that could change and transform them, and that was his. And so he does it just through that series of questions, and he's going to go a bit further. But basically, it revolves around this idea of, are your hearts hardened? Are you choosing not to believe? Do you not yet understand? And then he asks them two questions that he gives them a chance to respond to. And the first was this. He said, do you remember when I fed the 5,000 plus? you remember when I fed them? And, and that wasn't the answer he was looking for. He asked them this. He said, how many baskets were left over? And they said, I know. There were 12. It's like, good job. Then he asked them a second question. He said, you remember like 24, 36, 48 hours ago when I fed the 4,000? How many baskets were left over? They're like, ooh, ooh, I know, it was seven. He's like, good job good job. And then he looks at them and he says, do you not yet understand? Here's the thing we've got to acknowledge. Number one, we're, we're just like the disciples. But number two, because we're like the disciples, we have to put this out there and we have to acknowledge it. We have to lay claim to it and understand it. We are incredibly prone to forgetfulness. As followers of Jesus. Just like we expect the disciples had it all together right here, right now, in this place, uh, we have to acknowledge that, that we don't either. We don't. I'm 42. I have no doubt that on the shag gold carpet in my home at six years old, Jesus radically redeemed my life. I was not robbing banks. I was not killing people, but I was lost in my transgressions. There was no chance of hope for me, but by grace through faith, Jesus saved me there. No doubt. And I've been doing my best to follow Jesus since then. I'm nowhere near there yet. I have not arrived. There are things I do not know. Jesus would still be addressing me the same way that he's addressing these disciples most likely. We have to understand that, man, we're not there yet. We don't have it all together. And we are so prone to forget. We are quick to forget. And you say, well, I've never done that. Yes, yes, you have. Every time I panic about life circumstances, it reveals that I've forgotten. Every time I throw a pity party for myself, it reveals that I have forgotten. Every time I get scared and I enter into days upon days upon days of worry, it reveals that I have forgotten. Because the neat thing that the disciples had here that we probably even have more of at this stage in our life, if you've been following Jesus for more than just a few years, is we have a track record with Christ. And at any given moment, we have the ability to do exactly what Jesus is asking the disciples to do. Remember. Remember. The disciples are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. And that's the exact same reason that Jesus is sitting there. He's like, and he leads with a question. He finishes with the same one. He's like, do you not remember? You're arguing about bread. You're arguing about having one loaf, but yet you've seen me. You've been there. As a matter of fact, my blessings touched you, and you touched the blessings and distributed them. You of all people should know one loaf's not really a big deal for me. We forget in the same way. We forget in the same way. Many of us sitting in here, uh, you can look at your marriage as proof that God has come through. Not that you got married. Yes, that's grace. For every dude in here, if if we've gotten married, that's a beautiful example of grace. But that your marriage has survived, grace, remember. For parents in here, every time you look at your children, yes, you should look at your children and be like, yep, there's God right there. Not that my kids are God, but that God's come through. I saw you look at your dad just now. That's, I don't know if you looked at your dad to say, hey, look at me. You can remember God right now. But either way, like look at our kids. Maybe some there, there are some families in here right now that, uh, man, they've been graced children through adoption. Look at those children, and we see God. For many of us, we can look back and we remember the days, like my wife and I, we have so many days in which we can look back at our bank account and say, there's no way we should have eaten that month. There's no way we should have had gas that month. There's no way that we should have been able to pay rent that month. But somehow, in the most tangible way, God came through. But the very next time that finances get tight, I'll worry because I forget. Because I forget. Maybe we even go back to the the day, the time, the place of our salvation the by grace through faith experience in which Jesus graciously plucked us out of sinful obscurity into kingdom knownness because he enabled us and drew us and called us to believe. There's God. Yet we forget. Things get hard. Things get tight. Things get tough. And when they do, God, there's not enough to go around. There's only one piece of bread. I don't know how we're going to do it the answer is you're not. The answer is I'm not. But God is. We are prone to forget. In the midst of this forgetfulness, I think, believe it or not, the solution is pretty simple, <laughs> and it's, but it's complicated. In the midst of our forgetfulness, here's the solution. Choose to remember. That's exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples to do in the middle of this. Like they're arguing about the bread, and believe it or not, like if we wanted to take it eschatologically a little bit further, or Christologically a little bit further, big multisyllabic words, the bread of life is in the boat with them right now. Like They're arguing about the bread that they can eat, and the bread is sitting on the bench next to them, the one that can give them all that they need, all they've ever hoped for, all they've ever dreamed for. He's sitting right there, and they're arguing about a loaf. But we're not going to go that far but we could. But in the midst of the time that we forget, the thing that we have to do is choose to remember. Choose to remember. In the moment of doubt that we think we don't have enough to eat, enough to go around, or enough enough life to live, remember, Jesus has come through before. He can do it again. Remember, all the places in which we fell short, He did not. All the places in which we ran out of gas, he did not. All of the places that we were not good enough, he was more than enough. He had 12 baskets left over, 7 baskets left over. No one went hungry. Remember. Remember his provision. Remember him, who he is, and his kingdom. I think the other thing in the middle of this that we need to do Is uh, as cliche as it is. Need to remember where our bread comes from. Need to remember where our bread comes from. Right before this, right before their argument, right before uh, all of this, they had just experienced Jesus being questioned and Jesus being assaulted with words by the Pharisees, them wanting another sign. Then he gets in the boat with them, and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth is he's like, Be careful, be on the lookout. Be aware of the leaven, the bread that is offered by the Pharisees. Here's the reason he was telling them to be aware and to be on the lookout, because it would have been incredibly easy for them to end up just like the Pharisees. And the leaven of the Pharisees, by the way, if we look at Matthew and we look at Luke, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, number one, was their teaching, was one part of it. The fact that they were teaching that the only way to God was through performance. It wasn't through this grace thing that people didn't understand yet. No, no, no. It was about the do's and the don'ts. And if you didn't do the do's and you did the don'ts, God wasn't going to be happy, and you couldn't do it. So there's this law that they've laid out, and you've got to live it out perfectly, especially when people are watching. And if you do, you'll be okay. But if you don't, mm-mm, he said be aware of their teachings. Be aware of that little lump, because if it gets into the batch, it's going to ruin it all. I've made bread a few times, like I used to make a good, mean focaccia. I broke my breadstone and I stopped. But either way, it was good. But I also knew you had to have that starter. And if that starter didn't work out, that bread would be terrible. He's telling them the same thing. He's like, you've got to be really careful where you're getting that starter from, where you're getting your bread from, because the wrong stuff will kill you. It'll kill you. But not only their, their teachings but it was also the reason that he probably tossed in Herod, which is an odd thing to say, be aware of the leaven uh, of the Pharisees and of Herod. It was this fact. The Pharisees and Herod were not willing to acknowledge the kingdom of God. They were unwilling to acknowledge the kingdom of God. And by unwilling to acknowledge the kingdom of God, they were unwilling to acknowledge who the king was and what was under his purvey, because what they wanted was their kingdom, their stuff, their rule. The disciples could have gone that same way. Why do I know that? Because I could go that same way. I could strive to build my kingdom every single day. And if that's the leaven that I'm choosing, if that's the lump that I'm pulling out and putting into this batch, it's no good. It's no good. I think for us, like, we we see, we... If we've seen anything in the past two, three years, we've got to acknowledge that there are a ton of voices trying to make important things primary things. Hear me. A ton of voices are trying to make important things primary things. Same struggle the disciples had. A lot of the things that the Pharisees said, if you wrote them down, a lot of them probably wouldn't have been bad. They would have probably been good, wise rules to live by. Honor your father and mother. You do that, you'll live a long time. That's pretty good. We like that. But then they added about five lines to it. They had things about cleanliness. Not a bad deal. You probably shouldn't eat shellfish back then. You probably shouldn't have eaten shrimp. Probably wasn't good. Probably shouldn't have eaten certain parts of the pig. Probably not a good idea, but then they added 20 lines to that. Probably not bad rules, but if we're taking these things that are important and good and making them primary, we're basing our whole loaf of bread off the wrong thing. We're taking leaven, and it's going to corrupt it all. Over the past several years, we've had a lot of voices telling us, hey, this thing is so important that it needs to be the main soapbox you stand on. And if you're not posting about this or that or this or that, then, hey, people aren't going to know what you think. And if people don't know what you think, then people don't know you. Not true. Not true. Important things are just things. Primary things, though, there's just one. And it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. And man, that's hard. Like, I'll admit, that's hard. Because there's a ton of soapboxes I'd love to stand on because things that are important to me. Like, hey, you know, I'd love to keep trout rivers clean. Because I love to catch trout. (laughs) You're like, well, that's a silly one. Not to me. Keep the soapbox out of the river, by the way, because it pollutes the river. But either way, I'd love to stand on that one. Clean it well first. Wipe it down for Didymo. Don't spread algae. Stupid example. Either way, a ton of things are vying for us to just sing it from the mountaintops, but the only thing worthy of being sung from the mountaintops is just Jesus. Just Jesus. And how does that inform everything else? I think that's a huge question. Be aware of where our bread comes from. The other thing that the the Pharisees and Herod would have argued about, and it's the same reason that the Pharisees asked Jesus for a a proof of uh, identity or an authentication They doubted the very identity of Jesus, the very identity of Jesus. If we're taking leaven from anywhere that's saying that Jesus is anything other than God with skin on, the Son of God who walked among us to offer us our only chance at hope and salvation, our bread's coming from the wrong place, and it's going to kill us. You say, well, that's rather dogmatic. No, it's the gospel, and I'm okay with that. It's just Jesus. I've got to tell myself that every day. I have to tell myself that every day, that it's, it's just Jesus. My only chance at hope is not my good behavior, It's not my good grades, because I didn't do very well in that. It's just Jesus. Be careful where our bread comes from. And then, man, I'll say it again. Whose kingdom? Herod would have had a huge problem. And as a matter of fact, they, they hung it over Jesus' head, the king of the Jews, when they crucified him because they wanted to make fun of him. They'll be like, hey, look at the king of the Jews now. He's hanging and dying. He's been beaten. <laughs> Little did they know. They just put him on the throne. Whose kingdom? Is it mine? Wrong bread. Is it someone else's? Wrong bread. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. His kingdom. His throne. His rule. His mission. His careful where we get our bread. I think the easiest steps for us to do here, um, number one, Matthew 6, really simple, hard, but really simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Talking about don't be anxious about where your food comes from, where your clothes come from. Look at the lilies of the field. Aren't they dressed amazing? Look at the birds. God takes care of them. He loves you far more than all of those things. I'm telling you, just seek first the kingdom of God and all these things added unto you. That wasn't cliche. That wasn't just some fancy saying. No, those were the words of Jesus talking to his disciples saying, hey, this is how you that should live after knowing me. And then when questioned by some, some lawyers that were trying to trip Jesus up, a lot like the Pharisees here trying to test him, they're like, hey, tell us, most important commandment. What's that? He said, Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with everything you have from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot and everything in between and love your neighbors yourself. You do that, all the rest of the law, it's going to fall into place man, if we strive every day through the power of Christ to do those two things, our bread will be coming from the right place. Now, will there be days? Yep, there will be days, and we will screw it up royally. There will be days when Jesus is going to ask us a series of rhetorical questions. But on those other days, bread will be good. And hopefully we'll be passing it out to carry the metaphor on a little further. I think the last thing we do with this we accept two things. We accept grace, and we accept the challenge. The grace is this. We're going to be just like the disciples. There are going to be days when we're going to forget. Challenges are going to come. Shortcomings are going to happen, and we're going to immediately go back to who we were before Christ. We're going to forget. And so acknowledge that's going to happen. Don't live in liberty with that. Don't say, no, 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 it's going to happen, so it's okay. It's not liberty or license. No, it's just an understanding that it will. That's accepting grace. But then the challenge, when Jesus brings us back through repentance and, and conviction through the Holy Spirit, we accept that as well. And maybe it is a series of rhetorical questions like, hey, uh, hey, what were you thinking? Whose kingdom are you chasing? Where are you getting your bread, metaphorically speaking? Where's that coming from? Do you not remember? Jesus' way of bringing us back and saying, yes, there's grace here, because I knew you were going to screw up. That's the reason I died on the cross. But there's also the challenge to grow and go beyond it, which means you need to remember, repent, and move on. The disciples got to experience both in the boat, because he could have treated them like the Pharisees, He could have just stepped out of the boat and walked on the water. We've seen him do it and could have just left them there. But he stayed. He corrected. He rebuked. And he put them back on the path of remembering. They didn't need to worry about the one loaf. They didn't need to concern themselves with that. They just needed to willingly choose to remember what he had already done. The things that he, they had seen, the things that they had experienced, the blessings that had gone in one hand of theirs and out the other. They just needed to remember. Just needed to remember. I think for us, we, we very often, just like I said before that we could talk about, we very often worry about the bread that we don't have and forget about the bread that is right here with us. We worry about the bread, metaphorically, that we don't have, but we forget about the fact that Jesus, the bread of life, said He'd never leave us, never depart from us. we just got to choose to remember. Choose to remember. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You so much for Jesus. God, we thank You for the fact that, that He is the bread that we couldn't make, that He's the thing that we need the most that we couldn't engineer the thing we couldn't earn. But God, you offer him to us by grace, through faith. And you just ask when you show us, we accept. God, thank you for revealing your son to us. Thank you for his life, his death, his words, his resurrection, and God, the victory that he and only he offers. Thank you for Jesus. God, in a minute, as we, uh, as we celebrate the, what we remember about Christ through communion. I pray that you remind us today, like we willingly choose to remember what Jesus has done eternally, but also in our lives as individuals. And you remind us that it is beyond explanation. It is over the top, like we talked about last week, like it's more than enough. Thank you, God, that you're extravagant. And we get to see that through Jesus. God, remind us today as we celebrate. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now we are, it's the last Sunday of the month and we do communion.